Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. Okay, in this episode, we talked to Thomas Moynihan. He's a writer and historian interested in the history of ideas surrounding existential risk. Uh, his most recent book is called X Risk, and the subtitle is How Humanity Discovered Its Own Extinction. So the book basically tells a story of how people gradually discovered the perils and promises that face humanity as a species. What does that mean? Well, nowadays there's this kind of growing recognition that humanity's potential is enormous in scale, but it's also fragile. There are no laws of nature or outside forces which are you know, looking out for us here, uh, and there is just any number of ways in which things might get irrecoverably lost. Now, we've talked in previous episodes about what some of those X risks look like and how we might prevent them. But this conversation is more meta. It's not about specific risks, but rather how people came to appreciate that there is such a class of risks in the first place. Now, you might wonder whether this interest in existential risk is really so novel or so important, right? So on one hand, you might think it's a kind of intellectual fad. It's a bit sci-fi, it's a bit overhyped. And on the other hand, you might reasonably say, well, people have been thinking about the end of the world for absolutely ages. So this new wave of interest is just a case of, you know, window dressing, some old ideas in science secular language. But as Tom explains, both these worries miss the point. You'll hopefully get a better sense in the interview, but you might think that there are kind of two parts to his thesis. On the one hand, he shows that this preoccupation with human extinction does have really deep roots in the history of ideas, and its emergence is tied up in all sorts of interesting ways with the story of uh, geology, demography, the discovery of evolution by natural selection, uh, and even like enlightenment philosophy in general. But on the other hand, there's a really important sense in which today's ideas about human extinction are very unlike religious ideas of apocalypse, for instance. And in that sense, it's crazy to appreciate just how modern this realisation really is. I mean, the realisation that there is no, like, guiding hand stopping us from messing up and just putting an end to the whole human story. This is definitely something I hadn't considered before, but it turns out that for, like, centuries, this idea of human extinction just barely registered on anyone's minds, unless anyone who was writing anything. Um, But also, it was a really hard discovery to make, in some ways, because old ways of thinking just didn't allow for the really important distinctions which we take for granted nowadays. Distinctions between the possible and the actual, the organic and the inorganic, and between ethics and physics, for instance, if that makes sense. So Tom's thought is that recognising that we are capable of going extinct and that we have some control over whether that happens, that is a kind of hallmark of modernity. It's like a sign of maturity. And in our conversation, we get to meet some figures from this history and discuss the significance of intellectual history more generally. Uh, It's an absolute monster lengthwise. So as always, you're encouraged to use the chapter markers we've included and you can skip to questions which sound most interesting that way. But without further ado, here's the episode. My name is Thomas Moynihan. Uh, I currently am... um, 
So I've got a grant from the Berkeley Existential Risk Initiative, and I'm currently collaborating with the Future of Humanity Institute. Um, mainly, I'm working with Anders Sandberg, so we're doing a few papers together, and um, I'm helping him a bit with the beginning of his forthcoming book uh, entitled Grand Futures, where um, he's looking at the history of um, thinking about the long-term prospects for humanity. Uh, and so that's where I come in because uh, I'm, an, I guess, yeah, an intellectual historian, uh, even though that sounds like I'm calling myself a historian who is more intellectual than others. Um, <laughs> I guess, yeah, historian of ideas might be a better way of putting it. And yeah, my research uh, up until now has been mainly focusing on um, the history behind uh, what we now call existential risk. Uh, so the history of the idea of human extinction uh, but obviously, you know, as we, I'm sure we're going to talk about, that brings in all kinds of other things like the history of uh, our thinking about the future and the prospects for humanity. Yeah, this phrase intellectual history is kind of new to me. Can you say something about um, what that is? And also, how does how does someone end up doing intellectual history? What was your route to it? Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a strange one. I mean, there are you, you will find uh, intellectual history departments uh, in universities, but um not so often. Uh, I guess the the very um, basic way would be kind of material history. So studying um, wars and kind of the history of economics and things like that. So intellectual history is rarer because you're studying how ideas develop over time. So, you know, obviously those two things are blurred in practice. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite an old field. So you could uh, trace it back to uh, probably to the Enlightenment, actually. Um, but people have only started kind of really talking about the history of ideas with those terms um, since the early 1900s. Um, but yeah, how does one find themselves? Uh, so yeah, I had a rather strange path to it. Um, so I've always been interested in history. Um, I guess what you actually call big history. So uh, some of my earliest obsessions as a kid were... Um, paleontology and uh, extinctions, you know. I actually came up through uh, English departments through university, but I always felt kind of alien and um, didn't really fit. So I just decided that I would cultivate what I find interesting. And that, yeah, happened to be that I was very interested in, you know, history of science, history of philosophy. But yeah, and I guess in a way that, you know, is perhaps even slightly unique from those fields, is uh, coming up through kind of English departments through huma very humanities background. You know, when I was an undergrad, deconstruction, Derrida, those were the kind of things that we were taught were, you know, the cutting edge. Uh, and so the kind of general tenor was one of what I now call the suspicion. So it's this uh, mm. general mood of a kind of um, very immodest totalization of modesty as a kind of epistemic principle. So you try and humble any claim to authority, any claim to standards or even reason itself. This always kind of struck me as uh, wrong. Um, so at some point during undergrad, I went and was like, I'm going to go and read through these people that, uh, you know, uh, are so railed against in the humanities so the kind of the grand figures of the enlightenment um so i you know went back and read kant and uh, you know his ilk um yeah and that led me to this just uh, fundamental thing that i became absolutely obsessed with is 
you know, what I see as uh, kind of the one of the grand dramas of, I guess, you know, modernity itself is, uh, I guess, a conflict between disillusion and uh, dignity. So, you know, this sense that we, you know, with modernity, we realize that in a sense, we self-legislate our own values, which of course gives us a lot of freedom or a sense of freedom, but at the same time opens the door to foundationlessness and relativism, even nihilism. So I see, you know, these two grand themes of history, and I saw that they were being played out again in current departments with, you know, these kind of people that practice the hermeneutics of suspicion. And then on the other hand, you have people that still, you know, champion in some altered form the ideals of enlightenment. Um, and yeah, so, I, you know, I, I became very interested in those two themes to kind of counter this sense of suspicion and the way it was used in history. So I guess often the way history is practiced um, in this suspicious mode is to use history to delegitimate our current normative standpoints. Uh, so, you know, the kind of masters of suspicion, Freud, Nietzsche, Marx, and more recently people like Foucault, uh, what they would do is they would kind of say that, you know, our moral views don't have justified reasons, they have kind of just causal explanations. And so I'm very much interested in countering that by showing that there are kind of progressive intellectual lineages and places where clear progress has been made in morality or, um, you know, just kind of knowledge more generally. And so, you know, it took a while for the penny to drop for me to realize that this is what I was doing. But um, it was sometime around a decade ago, um, I was reading uh, for the first time one of Bostrom's papers. I think it's the original uh, Existential Risk in the Future of Humanity paper. Uh, and I just it just struck me that this was you know, a clear place where um, there had been progress or development uh, when it comes to thinking about, you know, the human in the world in the broadest possible sense. And yeah, it also struck me that there are histories of everything, you know, there's histories of uh, debt, you know, there's histories of, uh, there's even histories of, yeah, theses, there's histories of everything, right? But there wasn't a history that I could quickly find of extinction uh human extinction in this scientific sober-minded sense that was being communicated in the work of bostrom and others you know martin reese uh, richard posner uh so yeah i thought there's a lack here so you know you can go and find there'll be hundreds uh you know hundreds and hundreds of books on the history of apocalypse or the history of uh judgment day but i couldn't find one on the history of human extinction so i guess yeah that's uh, a long way of answering that question of how I came to doing what I've done. Yeah. And as you said, so this book tells this sweeping story of how people have thought about existential risk specifically as differentiated from something like religious apocalypse. So maybe a natural first question then is just to ask, what is the modern understanding of existential risk? And why is it importantly unlike the kind of things that uh, various religions have been talking about for a long time, which is the idea of an apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. So, I'll, yeah, I'll go for the, um, I guess, yeah, the orthodox definition um, is an event that would cause the extinction or permanent curtailment of the potential for Earth-originating intelligence. 
Yeah, and what's interesting, well, I think what's interesting there is that foregrounds the stakes, the moral stakes of that event rather than the kind of causal etiology. So I think that's something to keep in mind when, yeah, exploring the distinction between apocalypse and extinction. But I think there are four major points of distinction. Uh, So the first one would be that, you know, in apocalypse, so, you know, I kind of, when I say apocalypse, I would be referring to the end of the world in religious tradition um, and also mythical worldviews and also folklore. So the first point of differentiation would be uh, the apocalypse rarely seems to think of the end of the world as the termination of humanly recognizable value or meaning. Uh, So think about the Christian judgment day. Uh, What happens there is it's basically the culmination of meaning and also um, the revelation of the final meaning of cosmic history and also the revelation of ultimate value in a sense. So even if that's inscrutable to us as mere mortals now, it's still humanly recognizable. So it's kind of the, you know, the word apocalypse itself, itself means revelation. So it's inherently meaningful uh, in a way that extinction isn't. So second one would be a quite basic, well, quite basic to us now, but historically not so much, is the idea that the world in its vastness, you know, the physical cosmos, uh, stripped of, you know, kind of human meaning, human relations, uh, would go on continuing to exist after this. So you don't find this in, uh, you know, kind of apocalypses in various cultures. You know, there's, uh, we can think of, um, say, for example, the kind of Mayan apocalypse, uh, where it's interesting there, because in a sense, there's a kind of, there's a destruction of value in there where humanity actually just just disappear and that's it. There's no return or recompense. But uh, it's also the end of the rest of the universe. So, you know, the, the kind of the, the end of the universe, the end of humanity are coterminous. And so third one is the uh, apocalypse doesn't seem to be sensitive to the idea that the end of meaning can happen for entirely meaningless reasons. Uh, so there's always this kind of pomp and circumstance to it, uh, a sense of narrative justice. And then the fourth one is that also a lot of elder cosmologies are cyclical. So, uh, for, for example, the Buddhist kind of apocalypse is just nested within this eternal cycle of return and ends. So basically, if you put all those together and you can get, you know, not all of those come together as a bundle always. You can get places where you get a couple, but you don't get all four of them. So, yeah, I mean, the kind of tagline that uh i like to you know i like to say is that apocalypse secures a sense of an ending whereas extinction is the ending of sense uh basically what that means is that you know one is conciliatory and the other is you know inconsolable so yeah i think you know one is to do with projecting justice uh onto the external universe uh so regardless of our actions and our decisions uh justice will kind of always end up happening uh, whereas the other one, it, it rests in this fundamental acknowledgement that, you know, our actions and decisions really matter for justice. And uh, should we fail in this kind of ultimate sense, then that could potentially be the ending of everything we find meaningful.
So I wanted to to quickly pick up on this discussion just of uh, X risks and in particular this association with value, because as you said, one of these may be really scary things and maybe something that people kind of didn't want to come to a conclusion to is that this extinction of humanity isn't necessarily meaningful or doesn't have this this meaning or this great narrative to it. But as you say throughout your book as well, that isn't to say that this should just be something that we accept, that there actually is value in, in keeping humanity alive beyond just selfish reasons, per se. Can you elaborate a bit about this? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, to kind of link back into this, these, you know, grand themes, you know, existential risk and a sense of hope for, you know, a large future are kind of historically and conceptually two sides of the same coin. So as soon as people understand that they are in some sense wholly responsible for human values which was a historical discovery that responsibility you know becomes a double-edged sword so you know um should we not safeguard them against the risks against them then you know there is the potential for them to be radically diminished or destroyed entirely but at the same time uh you know that also means that we have the potential to do better and make the world a far better place uh, and our lot in it far better. So, yeah, I mean, the kind of background behind that, um, I think, you know, we'll probably kind of eke out a bit more later. But um, yeah, yeah, I think that they are historically and philosophically, you know, completely intertwined. Well, let's delve into these narratives then. And probably a good place to start is, let's say, with the default was um, before all of these discoveries were made. So you talk about this principle of plentitude that you kind of had in these pre-modern times about how we thought about destruction and uh, extinction and, and the like. Can you talk a, a bit about what that idea is? Yeah, yeah. So the principle of plentitude, um, so most basically uh, it states that all possibilities are realised. Um Again, this is kind of seems to be one of our default ways of thinking about possibility. On the surface, there's something very commonsensical about it, you know, measuring possibilities based on their realization. It's tended to be that most people take that to mean that all things equal, nature is as full of possible realizations as it can be. So all possibilities uh, are realized. So what this is, is there's an equilibrium between uh, what is possible and what is realized. And this then quickly becomes a comment, not just about the fullness of nature, uh, but also its lack of empty gaps. So, you know, some of this might strike us as kind of abstruse and strange, um, you know, from our point living in the 21st century. But, you know, I can't stress enough how much this was just a fundamental, uh, incredibly strong intuition for people for centuries. So, you know, I think this comes from uh, a projection of our values onto nature. So without the requisite kind of uh, critical work to disentangle these things, we tend to mingle them. Um, so, for example, the rational value is that waste is bad. You know, that's kind of an intuition that we all have. So projecting that onto nature, you know, leads to this conviction of plenitude uh, because, well, waste is irrational. Uh, so if there's ever a place where nature could do something, could realize a species or an object or even an event, but it simply just never does. And by simply, I mean that there is no reason for that. It's not to do with an incompatibility or a contradiction. It just never does for no reason. That's just, you know, that's just the way things are. 
that seems quite rational and strange to us. So, you know, so we think, well, no, obviously not. There couldn't be this waste, this empty gap where something could be, but never is. So what that means is that not just that everything comes into existence that can do it, basically it's, that's also incompatible with the idea that things disappear from existence permanently. Um, so the idea was for centuries was that if a species is destroyed in our vicinity and we can see it, so for example, the Romans did record uh, animals disappearing, but the background assumption was that they would exist elsewhere or reappear somewhere else in time. And people were explicit about this as well. And the same applied to the human species as well. So it kind of, uh, it precludes the irreversibility uh, that gives the modern notion of species extinctions its meaning uh, and its stakes. Uh, because you can say that ultimately uh, this thing will reappear elsewhere and elsewhere. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the, ba the basic intuition, I think, can be encapsulated with the fact that uh, not only would it be a waste for nature to go for the effort of producing a species and then destroy it, after it's destroyed, it's also therefore forever afterwards a wasted opportunity. I, yeah, I do think that sometimes it does seem very strange to people to hear about this plenitude intuition now, but because I've spent so long kind of you know, mining around in the historical depths. I can't stress enough how uh, how just unreflectively obvious it seemed to most people for a long time. You're absolutely right, though, like, at least in my own case, it's really weird and it's really hard to get your head around how this kind of principle of plenitude could be, like, so pervasive and apparently so, like, obvious to so many people. And it makes me think you mentioned something else in the book, which is maybe related to this kind of principle, which is that... Uh, there's this kind of hallmark of classical thought and maybe even up until the Enlightenment, um, which was something like the thought that everything kind of worth discovering or everything important had or already been discovered. Like we've kind of, we've done, we've done everything. Um, what do you think that was? Yeah, so, so I mean, it, it, that is actually a strict entailment of the principle of plenitude in one of its stronger forms. Uh, so... You don't have to be an eternalist to believe in plenitude, but it certainly helps. Uh, Aristotle was an eternalist, so he thought, you know, there was kind of no beginning and no end to time. Um, so instantly, you know, that seems to lend itself to believing in a strong form of plenitude. Um, but yeah, like I say, a lot of um, a lot of uh, Christian uh, theologians also very, very much believed in plenitude and they weren't eternalists so you know you don't need that but um yeah so aristotle uh says explicitly in a bunch of occasions that uh everything useful uh that can be discovered has previously been discovered and if we just if we don't know it now it's just because it's been lost but you know this has happened infinitely many times before so it, it can get technical quite quickly but with, with plenitude, what it does is it, you know, uh, collapses, um, uh, it collapses possibility into its realizations. Uh, but basically that means that you can't, it's very hard to think about a workable distinction between uh, prescriptions and descriptions. So for every kind of value we can think of, we must be able to point to a time X where it happened uh, or will happen. So it kind of you know, mingles uh, is an ought in an interesting way. 
So, you know, that is to say, plenitude doesn't just apply to species, it also applies to values and also epistemic discoveries. So, uh, so for Aristotle, he said, you know, everything useful has previously been discovered. Um, and, you know, also all kind of uh, truths as well. So, yeah, the interesting thing about this is that it leads to, yeah, what I call kind of the indestructibility of value. So the thing is, is that there are places where these ancient and medieval authors talk about these massive calamities, these big disasters. Uh, You know, Plato talks about these huge planetary catastrophes, you know, conflagrations. But it's always nested within this conviction that things will return uh and any loss of kind of value or um you know however you want to put it any loss now will later be replenished uh so you can have these local destructions of uh good things but these are kind of just transformations they're not actual losses uh so values can serve through all these things but one of the really interesting things about it is that it means that inquiry is just rediscovery or remembering the past in the right way. Uh, and also ethical action is just kind of returning to like previous maxima of like goodness. Uh, so you can see why in a sense it precludes uh, the idea that the future is kind of a meaningful target for ethical action in a sense. Um, And yeah, you know, one thing that I want to stress and make clear, if I can, is how these really basic intuitions that, you know, our entire worldview rests on today, that a lot of us take for granted, took just centuries of hard work and uh, detours and errors to get there. So we take it, it's so part of our worldview now that, you know, you can affect the amount of value in the world, but this just wasn't a thing that people used to be preoccupied with. Yeah, and that's something else that stood out as being like particularly weird to me was this idea that the distinction between, I think you put it as like between ethics and physics, what is and what ought to be, which is, just seems totally obvious to me, um, is kind of relatively novel. And there was a point where that wasn't so obvious or that distinction was like blurred in various ways. Um, yeah, so I really like that. But as we kind of move forward in this story, skipping a few centuries, we get to this point where people are beginning to develop new technologies and also new um, scientific disciplines, most importantly, I think, heading into the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. So I think it'd be useful just to go through a few of them and just speak to how they influenced thinking about existential risk. So um, let's start with with astronomy. We get this famous discovery that uh, the Earth, it turns out, is not the centre of the universe and um, in fact, it revolves around something. Was that was that relevant to how people saw the kind of fate of the Earth and the place of the Earth in the universe more broadly? Mm. In terms of uh, in terms of revolutions in worldview, the, you know, the Copernican Revolution is you know the go to example. You know, it's it's in a sense affected the meaning of the word revolution itself. But it is, yeah, it's also where we get the idea of a philosophical revolution from as well. One of the things, though, is, uh, and this has kind of become a myth of intellectual history uh, going back to the late Victorian period, is that it was the Copernican Revolution was this huge blow to human self-esteem. So Freud uh, liked to refer to 
the three main blows to human self-esteem. The one uh, that was uh, discovered by Copernicus, second was Darwin, and then the third, very modestly, was Freud himself. But so, you know, it worked for him to kind of have this very dramatic uh, sense of the progress of ideas. But yeah, you know, uh, instantly the Copernican revolution was absolutely not this knock to human self-esteem. So it was decentering. Because, you know, it uh, kind of implied this principle of mediocrity. But people didn't interpret that uh, very carefully to begin with. Because of a form of plenitude, again, actually, uh, the space of realizations was massively expanded by the kind of thesis of the plurality of worlds. So, you know... uh, the Copernican revolution is wrapped up in this idea of the plurality of worlds. So basically belief in exoplanets. And so, you know, it was decentering, uh, the space of realizations is massively expanded, but the space of possibility was not. Uh, so people believed basically that every single world would have the same kind of, uh, history and, um, the same realities as earth. So yeah, you know, Copernicus wasn't a blow to, you know, the Copernican revolution was not a blow to human self-esteem uh, in the sense that decentering us actually was a kind of uh, spreading of anthropic life throughout uh, the entire universe. So, that you know, it's one of these interesting, yeah, interesting episodes um, because, you know, it shows the persistence of certain biases into the secularizing and naturalizing worldviews. Uh, so, you know, there's always these kind of delays and these lags and, you know, the scientific revolution didn't instantly just kind of remove all the baggage of uh, the scholastic theological worldview where we just presumed everything was tele- teleological and designed uh, because in some sense, these age old biases and basically our tendencies to contaminate our objective theories with these kind of value-laden uh, presumptions, they continued well into the secular, naturalized worldview of, of the scientific revolution. So as you say, these blows to self-esteem need to kind of come from, from other places as well. And one of those places seems to be this field of astrobiology, uh, which actually before I read your book, I didn't really know uh, was a thing, but it sounds super interesting. And in particular, this debate between these kinds of two schools of thought, uh, catastrophism and uniformitarianism. Uh, can you talk a bit about what that debate is and how that then linked into our understanding of X risks? Yeah, yeah. So um, astrobiology, uh, the way I use it is kind of anachronistic. So I'm kind of pushing back a field that's only a few decades old. But what I'm doing is like trying to uncover its, you know, long-term conditions of possibility so given all these things i've been talking about these kind of uh biases contaminations the central idea of astrobiology is habitability so the question of where life can emerge you know elsewhere in the cosmos what are the conditions for that so it's applying uh insights from macroevolution, uh you know biochemistry and thinking about them in a cosmological context so the very ability to think about habitability is thinking about the questions of possibility of life as if they're not just universal anyway. So these were questions that didn't occur to people just a few centuries ago. So I wanted to show how, you know, what is quickly becoming one of the, I think, most interesting, fast moving fields of science, you know, 
uh, how, you know, its conditions of possibility stretch back further into history. Um, and we're, yeah, again, very hard won. But yeah, to talk about catastrophism and uniformitarianism. So that is now important to uh, fields like, you know, cosmology and astrobiology. Uh, but it comes originally from geology. So geology as a science um, consolidated during the Enlightenment. So, you know, people have told their self, themselves stories about the creation of the world, you know, for a long time, but they haven't, you know, kind of thought about it in a scientific framework. Uh, so it emerged during the 1700s uh, as a mature discipline. But the fundamental methodological question was uh, basically how to apply the scientific method to things that we can't observe. Uh, so how can you be empir- how can you be an empiricist about things that are so far in the past that no human can ever observe them. And originally the field was wrapped up in uh, these quite um, theistic questions. So, um, you know, it was like, how can we explain the deluge in the Bible? Let's find, let's go and find evidence for it. And so you'd conscript these supernatural explanations for these kind of abrupt interventions of God into the world. And those would be the explanatory story that we tell ourselves. But then as the field matured, scientists were like, well, we need to be empiricists and rigorous about this. So uh, let's cut all of the unobservable supernatural stuff away and just focus purely on what we can observe. And that led to this idea, you know, against catastrophes uh, that was called uniformitarianism. So it's the idea that nature is very uniform, uh, which is to say that it will be the same in the past and the future as it is in the present. So this is a kind of overinflated form of empiricism. It's like taking empiricism far too far. Um, you know, it was obviously necessary at the time to get rid of the supernatural, uh, you know, kind of um, residue. But um, yeah, it led to this sense that uh, nature is always the same, which interestingly enough to, you know, get back onto the history of existential risk and, you know, extinction threat meant that the idea of a species extinction was a problem. Uh, so around this time, people, there was undeniable evidence, paleontological evidence of previous prehistoric extinctions. But for a uniformitarian who, you know, they're kind of, uh, ma- major motivating uh, value is to look for places where nature is uniform. That's a real problem because, you know, here's something which used to be but isn't anymore. How do you kind of square that with um, your idea that the past and the present and the future are all continuous? So basically they went, yeah, to the oldest trick in the book, which is a form of plenitude, and said, oh, well, um, you know, the Earth is this steady state system. Thing Possibilities emerge in it, disappear, and, but then they'll come back at some point in the future. So you actually got these Victorian geologists saying that at some point in the future, the dinosaurs would, would return. Uh, and they had these visions of, uh, you know, the Sussex countryside being stomped over by Iguanodon all over again. Um, you know, and yeah, by kind of strict implication, that means the same would apply to us. So, you know, you get another instance where these background assumptions uh, are, yeah, kind of preventing and obstructing us from thinking about uh, the permanence or the stakes of human extinction. So something else you mentioned um, was this idea that there was just this assumption that all matter was organic and that the word inorganic was like relatively new. Um, Where did that come from? Mm, Yeah, yeah. So this, I find this very, very interesting. 
it's a sense in which that distinction didn't exist. So there wasn't a distinction between the inorganic or the organic. So people, I mean, like, it's not that people thought that the world was literally made out of flesh or meat, but it was it was incredibly teleological. So they thought of the world almost uh, exclusively with organic metaphors. So um, there's one good example is um, this polymath uh, Athanasius Kircher who was writing in the 1600s um, and he had this book Mundus Subterraneus which is one of the first books to is one of the first books to have a cross section of the earth in it so yeah the idea that the earth had this internal structure was also a kind of novel thing because again it's quite commonsensical to just not think about that because none of us have ever kind of you know gone much further than the deepest mind so but yeah, so he used all these organic metaphors for the Earth. So he thought that the Earth basically worked like an organism. Uh, volcanoes are a form of flatulence, all of these kind of things. Um, and it was very common at the time to think um, that, in a sense, all matter is occupied or wound up in the economies of use for life, which, again, is a kind of commonsensical thing to think. You know, if you strip away all of the you know knowledge that you know now and you had to start from the beginning, you know, that would be a kind of state that you'd probably plateau on for a long time. You know, another interesting example is Edmund Halley, um, who is otherwise, you know, uh, brilliant, innovative uh, polymath scientist. He came up with this theory that the Earth was hollow um, and filled with concentric rings. And one of the supporting arguments that he uh, rallied for that was because, um, you know, all of these inner rings must be populated. So the whole world is populated. And that makes a lot more sense because otherwise it would be this massive waste of space on the end. You know, if the whole Earth is just this big, solid, inorganic thing, that's a waste of space. Uh, so, so yeah, so, so, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's not necessarily that people were thinking that the world was, you know, fleshy and alive in a, in a kind of literal sense, but they thought that the whole thing was in some sense, um, uh, end oriented towards life and the, you know, the, the maintenance of the living. Uh, some people literally did actually say that organic matter came before anything inorganic. So Erasmus Darwin, uh, Charles's, uh, grandfather, yeah explicitly said that you know all the rocky mass of the earth was germinated from um these kind of ancient microorganisms so yeah you know the people kind of had their whole vision of the cosmos the wrong way around uh you know it it took so much longer than um might seem obvious for people to really realize that the vast majority of matter in the kind of you know our observable vicinity is absolutely sterile dead and doesn't seem to be doing much interesting so you you call this period of thinking i think cosmic nonchalance i, I don't know if i pronounced that right but um it, this kind of idea that um even though we have some evidence of some species going extinct um and that is might be possible of humanity as well on the whole we don't really care because clearly there's so much life in this universe um that will reappear again and life will kind of find a way but then you get um some more findings and and there's more evidence of mass extinction that some people start taking this more seriously and uh start predicting as well when we might uh ourselves 
go extinct or when when humanity might disappear and this kind of aligns up as well with these discoveries in probability and forecasting and one of these people I, I want you to to talk a bit more about is uh, Joseph Leland and uh, what he found uh, and what what he kind of predicted. Mm, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, he was a French mathematician, um, and he uh, is the first person that I've managed to find who applies very very crude. Uh, let me stress very crude probability to the question of a planetary disaster. So. Yeah, comets had become uh, a occupation uh, for scientists, you know, for, yeah, kind of the 1600s. And then Lalande was writing in the late decades of the 1700s. Uh, and during that span of time, probability theory had really flourished and had become, a, you know, legitimate and um, incredibly, uh, yeah, fast moving field. Um, so this was the time of uh, Laplace and, you know, these giants of probability. And so Leland, who was, uh, you know, in the same kind of milieu as uh, Laplace, uh, he wrote this short pamphlet um, on comets and, um, yeah, uh, applied uh, very basic probability. So what he did was uh, he worked out how much of the Earth's entire orbit the Earth itself is occupying at any one time. So he calculated that based on arc seconds as uh, it was one in one in seventy three millionth, I think. So at any point in time, the Earth is occupying one in seventy three millionth of the entire uh, orbit. And then said, well, if a comet does ex- intersect with our orbit at any t- at any place, you know, at kind of unspecified time. There's obviously a one in 70, 73 million chance of it colliding with us, you know, which, yeah, again, is, 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 is very crude. Uh, but just even even, you know, kind of applying those questions to this, that kind of methodology to these kind of questions that previously um, and even at the, the time were primarily approached with basically moral intuition rather than the kind of impersonal uh, rigor of maths. Yeah, it was, you know, in a sense, innovative. Uh, the interesting thing was, is that people you know most people at the time just had no idea what probability was and thought that he was therefore saying you know that this was some kind of uh, solid forecast uh, and apparently his pamphlet caused uh, panic on the streets of paris so so yeah yeah i mean it's an interesting episode and it it points to this yeah wider wider shift where yeah like i said you know these questions of calamity and catastrophe were previously approached with our kind of you know, emotional resources, our kind of religious frameworks, our, um, you know, strong, um, yeah, value-laden intuitions. And here they were being outsourced to the kind of, yeah, the, the formal uh, formal systems of, you know, um, maths, which kind of, uh, you know, gets rid of a lot of that baggage. And that's what I think is is important here is this kind of impersonality of these mathematical forecasts um really kind of uh yeah I, I, I channeled our intuitions in a useful way here um so yeah i mean the land is an interesting one there was and then he, he after that a whole bunch of you know you'd get people every decade decade or so kind of updating and bringing their own probabilities to the table on that mm. well, one of the like very small but like 
poetic details that really stood out to me was uh, you mentioned that he published this pamphlet, I think, just three years after a comet passed by Earth, which was like around two million kilometers away, which might sound like a lot, but it actually ends up being the closest uh, a comet has passed the Earth uh, in in recorded history, at least. And that seems like such a, a freakish coincidence, right? I mean, clearly must be, but um, you couldn't write it better, right? You couldn't write history better than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was shocked when I found that as well. I think uh, it's it's contested, but yeah, on one uh, on one account, that is the closest recording and recorded uh, encounter. So, yeah, very poetic. Everyone was panicking about Lalanne's comet, uh, but you know, three years earlier, we'd had a close shave. <laughs> and speaking of comets as well, you brought up Halley, right? And he actually made a successful prediction of this reappearance of you know, the comma, which has since been named after him, um, which shows that this isn't just a bunch of eccentric scientists kind of, you know, pulling numbers out of nowhere. This is really a kind of progress, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, the comet, I think, becomes, at least in my mind, becomes a symbol of a lot of the innovations and breakthroughs in this period, because as well as uh, attracting these kind of probabilistic, uh, you know, analyses, because in a sense, you know, there are a bunch of billiard balls flying around our kind of cosmic vicinity. Uh, also, the fact that their paths are kind of tractable by another field of mathematics that was emerging in the t- at this time, calculus. You know, the, the massive innovation of calculus, uh, and again, it's, you know, hard to overstate how huge this is in the foundations of modern science is that, you know, it makes continuous processes, uh, you know, tractable uh, to computing. So, you know, these kind of these kind of curved pathways of, you know, all, all kinds of different natural processes uh, from, you know, population to, you know, the pathways of comets, uh, they all kind of yield themselves to prediction. And what this does is, you know, because again, because of the impersonality and the rigor and the precision of numbers, it means that people could begin to talk about, you know, vast timescales in quite a detailed way and what this did was replaced the shallowness of infinity or eternity with actually some kind of structure of these long-term processes that kind of unwind beyond the human temporal horizon but are still kind of tractable to calculation in a way so what i mean by the shallowness of eternity is to go back to aristotle is you know eternity is uh you know everything happens in it but also nothing new so there's kind of you know you're, there's uh not much structure to this eternity so you know to kind of go back to uh the birth of geoscience which was happening at the same time this is where you get deep time it's not eternal time it's not infinite time it's deep time uh so it's these kind of massive but finite expanses um and so all of these really revolutionary developments were all happening at around the same time. Uh, and yeah, all converge in a very different worldview by the end of the Enlightenment. Mm. I'm glad you brought up the idea of uh, deep time. Could you say a bit about this idea of big history that was kind of growing up around the same period? And um, can you mention in particular this name James Jeans that came up and he had this fantastic example of a, a postage stamp, which really stood out to me? Yeah, yeah. So that I, I was, um, I was so happy when I found that because it's such a good, uh, it's a good example of a really brilliant science writer 
doing their job perfectly. Uh, so, so Jeans was um, a prominent phys- physicist uh, in the very early decades of the uh, 1900s. Um, and he wrote a, a few uh, very popular and well, um, well-read books on physics. But one of the interesting things about him was he was also one of those kind of synoptic scientists who'd like, you know, do the science and then also think about how, you know, we can fit our, you know, kind of uh, manifest image, our human worldview into this. So, yeah, it was, you know, around this time uh, that people were kind of really hammering down, you know, forecasts for the future of Earth's habitability, given the life cycle of our sun. And Jeans uh, calculated, you know, this vast expanse um, of future time uh, that we have on this planet and used this brilliant metaphor of it's it's something like, you know, the thickness of the postage stamp is human history. Uh, and then Cleopatra's obelisk, um, the length of that, which is, you know, it's, it's quite big. You know, you balance that on top of the postage stamp and that's the potential future history uh for humanity on on earth um on earth alone and so you know this is um it's really interesting because uh arnold toynbee um one of the prominent historians uh, at the time he read this and thought it was very interesting and in his treatment of this he actually brings it into the brings it back to this uh, stuff uh, with Aristotelian eternalism that we've been talking about and also the idea, the platonic idea of cycling, uh, cycling civilizations. Toynbee said that this, this discovery of modern physics completely reverses that worldview where everything that can be done has been done in the past because we now realize that history itself is tiny. It would be very surprising for our kind of archaeologists to now discover some, you know, ancient prehistorical civilization with vast amounts of knowledge, uh, you know, far surpassing what we have now. Uh, No, everything to be done lies ahead. And this is a, yeah, this is a fundamental shift in our relationship to time and also our kind of placement in history and our potential. Um, So, yeah, I really love this Jeans quote because I think it, um, you know, Obviously, a lot of that optimism about the long-term future then gets kind of derailed throughout the atrocities of the the, the, the 20th century. Um, but, you know, I think that, that obviously with, you know, um, kind of transhumanism, effective altruism, the kind of modern movements that are emerging, this idea of, you know, in Parfit's Hinge of History, this idea of the vastness of the future and the vastness of the potential in it is re-emerging. So it was really nice to find, you know, uh, someone talking about it in quite, you know, quite uh, rigorous terms, in, uh, you know, at least a century ago. Yeah, fantastic. And let's come back to that. But something I want to mention is I like this idea of there being a kind of shift away to more impersonal ways of thinking about physics in the example you gave, you know, predicting orbits of comets and so on. And that sounds right to me. So, you know, Aristotle's physics, for instance, you might describe it, roughly speaking, as a a world full of things wanting to do things, right? Nature abhors a vacuum and gravity happens because things want to move towards the centre of the Earth. And you also mentioned that, you know, it's not just physics. This kind of shift towards numerical and precise and impersonal approaches was also applied to kind of ourselves and to what gets called population science 
or demography. Um, can you say something about why that is significant, um, particularly with respect to thinking about existential risk and the future of humanity? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the thing that shocked me um, very early on when I was, you know, kind of embarking on what became this project was one of the very first instances of someone talking about uh, the extinction in humanity and what I believe to be a, you know, naturalistic uh, sense, you know, one that fulfilled most of my criteria for something that isn't, you know, isn't an apocalypse and isn't extinction comes from uh, Baron de Montesquieu, who uh, in 1721 wrote this book, uh, The Persian Letters. And he, yeah, talks about humanity uh, going extinct through uh, depopulation. So he subscribed to this theory that was quite popular at the time, that the population of um, Europe and potentially the world had declined uh, radically since uh, the since Roman times, uh, you know, ironically enough, given that, you know, the 1700s was the beginning of, you know, the massive uptick in uh, population, you know, so it's kind of funny to see people talking about this when the world, you know, the, the world population was about to explode. But, um, you know, completely right that it's this kind of impersonal approach is he was taking these very basic ideas of, you know, uh, extrapolation um, and calculation, thinking, you know, if humanity is this arithmetical mass, this aggregate mass, uh, and there is a trend in one direction or the other, you know, here down, there will be a point where it dwindles to zero, you know, which again, it seems so obvious to us now, but this was a new way of, you know, putting those concepts into action. So, yeah, and the other major thing about uh, demography and why it was important was that it inculcated thinking about humanity um, as a species or, you know, at that level of a global mass. So a global collective. Um, so as soon as that came into view, obviously now a new unit of perishing came into view as well. So it wasn't just, you know, the death of civilizations or uh, peoples or you know, individuals, it was also potentially the death of the aggregate mass. So, yeah, so that was, you know, that was, that was very uh, important to that. And, you know, you get the, the first kind of fictions on what we now recognize as human extinction, you know, the, the genre was called the last man. And you need that arithmetic idea to think about that because uh, another distinction between apocalypses and extinctions is apocalypses are almost always uh, univocal in the sense that everyone dies at the same time or, or there's kind of some universal calamity. So, so yeah, it was this, you know, this kind of uh, quite granular approach that emerges from applying uh, arithmetic to populations that, yeah, allowed us to kind of, uh, you know, think about the last person What's interesting as well is that all of this demographic thinking also emerges from uh, advances in probability. Uh, so Halley himself, um, it was people trying to compute uh, annuities. Uh, and so they were trying to, you know, kind of figure out mortality rates. Uh, another guy called Grant, uh, he was, you know, he did some uh, innovations in this area where, yeah, you'd notice that there are these kind of regularities in population and it start, made, basically just made people start to think about humanity at that very abstract and impersonal level. So we've talked about uh, 
all sorts of different fields here, which are hitting into humanity's self-esteem. Uh, one of the things that I want to bring in is, is Darwin's work. In particular, what I found really interesting about how your book talks about Darwin's work is actually how it got reinterpreted. So initially, people found a lot of hope in Darwin. And uh, you mentioned this thing called the intelligence niche. Uh, could you briefly explain what that is and why people saw that as a, as a source of hope when it comes to, to humanity's survival? Yeah, yeah. So, so again, uh, you know, it's another example of our tendency to uh, allow our, um, you know, our, our values or basically what we would like the world to look like to contaminate our objective theories. Prior to Darwin, uh, for actually a surprisingly long amount of time, uh, people held uh, to an idea of transmutation of species. So, yeah, the idea that species change into other species and, you know, there's this uh, mutation over time actually predates Darwin. But those prior theories were very teleological and very progressivist. So the idea was, uh, the idea often was that uh, humanity is the pinnacle that includes all the previous uh, animals within itself. Uh, So this was popular in German natural science uh, at the beginning of the 1800s. Um, and so, you know, people would look to embryonic development and see that, you know, well, think that they saw that in the, the development of the human embryo, it repeats the fish, the mammal, you know, goes through all the previous stages. So people had this very strong intuition, again, that, you know, things seem to be leading up to man. Uh, and so, you know, Darwin's, uh, you know, uh, Darwin's dangerous idea, right, was that, you know, we don't need a designer to have design. Uh, but it took a long time. Again, there's this lag, like with the Copernican revolution, uh, all these kind of auxiliary supporting uh, observations and theories need to be kind of dragged up behind this idea for its full implications to become very clear. So uh, with Darwinism, it did take a while for that kind of anti-teleological lesson to become as apparent as needed to be to you know, fully decenter uh, humanity from that evolu- evolutionary narrative. And you can still see this today is, you know, um, a lot of uh, kind of, uh, I guess, folk intuitions about evolution, you know, do play into this progressivist idea that things, you know, kind of lead up to lead up to man. So, yeah, so so Darwin himself did often make progressivist sounding claims. Uh, another interesting thing was that he has like one of his most important, um, you know, precursors was Charles Lyell, who was you know, the kind of master of uniformitarian geology. And so to go back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, this uniformitarian geology precludes uh, kind of disequilibrial things. So there's this massive equilibrium across Earth history. Um, Darwin applied that same intuition to biological history. So what that meant was that he subscribed to a very strong form of gradualism um and also continuity across species so darwin actually said that mass extinctions even though the evidence for them was beginning to be uh kind of um noticed uh, you know quite early on uh people noticed that biodiversity dips in these you know quite severe places um darwin said that this is an artifact of our limited perspective on the fossil record you know, there are these continuous lineages, you know, uh, successful animals don't die out, they change into other animals. You know, there aren't these kind of extrinsic contingent events, say an asteroid, even the most adapted species could suddenly just be wiped out. 
this was quite an alien um, thing to the Victorian mind, uh, to the you know post-Darwinian, well, the interpretation of Darwin in the Victorian era. And it's also quite it's surprisingly quite recent that we've begun to entertain again kind of catastrophist um, you know ideas since the 50s, but gaining a lot more momentum uh, with the discovery of um, the uh, Chich Club crater in New Mexico, which provides evidence for the, you know, the impact of event that killed the dinosaurs. But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, Darwin originally seemed to make people feel very hopeful about the future of humanity, um, because even if those things don't look like humans, they're obviously going to be uh, descended from us in some meaningful way, because... Um, you know, very successful animals turn into other ones, uh, become more adapted. They don't just simply die out for contingent extrinsic reasons. Yeah, yeah. And exactly as we kind of abstract a bit from humanity away, there's also this this problem that it might not be the case that natural selection will ensure that an intelligent species will replace us. Um, I think you, you mentioned it as this, this planet of the ape hypothesis in the book, that if humanity were to disappear... The octopuses won't necessarily take over and evolve into something that kind of resembles civilization. And that is a real problem if we kind of think that there is something special about humanity and this ability to preserve culture and all the creative value uh, around it as well. Yeah, yeah. So so the Planet of the Apes hypothesis is is, uh, is Charles Lineweaver, this um, really great planetary scientist. He, um, he wrote this paper on... Uh, the basically evolutionary convergence and how confident we can be about a returning kind of human level intelligence should we disappear. And so he called this, uh, again, this kind of intuition, latent intuition that, you know, floats around popular culture that, um, yeah, you know, if we mess it up, then yeah, the, uh, the monkeys will take over or, you know, at a stretch, maybe the dolphins or the, uh, or the octopus, so the, these early debates in evolution about progressivism, uh, this is like also orthogeneticism was a similar idea that there's directionality in evolution and the kind of how much telos there is. Uh, also, is uh, adaption always um, related to increasing complexity? These debates have kind of modulated uh, into a debate around convergence and contingency. So, so, you know, the beginning of the, the 1900s, you get biologists uh, beginning to say, you know, publish these kind of incendiary papers saying all of you people who think that aliens will look like us, are, you know, you're not reading your Darwin close enough. You're not you know, engaging with evolution close enough. And then as soon as SETI gets off the ground, uh, you know, beginning of the 1960s, um, like uh, you get a bunch of prom- very prominent evolutionary biologists uh, getting quite angry with SETI and thinking that it isn't paying much attention to this idea uh, of evolutionary contingents. Um, yeah, and then uh, more recently, the debate, two of the main figures are Stephen Jay Gould, an evolutionary biologist, also a brilliant historian of ideas, and Simon Conway Morris, another evolutionary biologist. So... Uh, Gould is a, very much a contingency, uh, con- you know, he believes in evolution contingency. So he says, if we replayed the tape of life, uh, the results would be vastly different. There's no guarantee that a kind of intelligent, uh, value-led, uh, ethically conscious, uh, featherless biped would emerge. We have no guarantee for that. 
whereas mm. on the other side, Cormo Morris says that, you know, there's a lot of evidence for convergence. So, you know, the eye has evolved so many times. Um, Carcinization. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So if we replayed the tape, there's probably more evidence that there'll be, you know, there'll be crabs everywhere <laughs> rather than uh, <laughs> featherless bipeds. But yeah, so, you know, so there's the, the debate is ongoing um, and it forms one of the kind of core the core disagreements or, um, I guess, animating uh, tensions in astrobiology. But, uh, yeah, yeah, the Planet of the Apes uh, hypothesis, you know, I, I think... So, obviously, the facts are, you know, the facts are still, um, you know, the, the, there's still open questions everywhere here. There's no, con- there's no conclusions. But what I would say from the history is, uh, you know, across history, we've kind of constantly uh had to realize how careful we have to be in the vicinity of these kind of things and again how we are tendent to have this tendency to contaminate with our values uh so the kind of the the direction of travel the general drift of history is uh, you know kind of further away from the idea of anthropoids everywhere and yeah more recently um you know uh there is a lot of evidence um or a lot of good arguments coming out around observer selection effects and those kind of um, those kind of areas, uh, basically giving good reasons for why some of the very good reasons for expecting life to be common and complex and intelligent life to be common might be uh, less persuasive than they first seem. Um, so yeah, this is like an ongoing. Uh, you know, this isn't just history; it's history in the making still. Um, but it's one of the most interesting questions, I think. One idea I wanted to raise, um, which was new to me and I, I loved uh, reading about, was this thought that human intelligence and by extension intelligence more generally is something like just a kind of signal of like reproductive fitness, much like the preposterous like antlers of extinct, importantly extinct Irish elk or um, peacock feathers, right? If they weigh them down, they're kind of stupid save for this fact that they've they kind of signal fitness and they're so big and so kind of unwieldy because you get these like spirals evolutionary spirals right where you're out competing one another up to a limit where you just like die if they're any bigger and i i love the thought that that intelligence is a bit like that and it's maybe less useful than we thought for just surviving i think maybe a question here is just do you find that plausible yeah yeah i think um maybe having some know-how by now of yeah where we're being mythical and where we're being evidence-based in our reasoning there's something about that idea even though i, I agree with you it's, it's there's something very attractive about it but there's also something about it that like smells a little bit of a scientized version <laughs> of original sin so you know there's this kind of this sense that humanity is doomed from its very inception it's there's you know there's an original sin aspect to it but no i mean in terms of uh as far as you know as far as i'm aware there there are theories for kind of uh, harmonization that do uh kind of fit with this thesis so you know one of them's like the machiavellian loop was that there was this kind of you know um yeah, not not necessarily like a, a reproductive fitness signaling, but that you know to just keep up with everyone else, we had to become very good at models of mind and tricking each other, and that's what kind of created this runaway right, right. explosion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the usages of this maybe abuses of this thesis uh, of you know there kind of being a kind of 
over preponderance of braininess uh, in in the human being. Um, so you can find people like Schopenhauer actually saying similar things a while ago, but it became very popular during uh, the Cold War. So it was this, you know, because it obviously plays into this very nice um, motif that our technological skill has outrun our moral wisdom, uh, that we've got this kind of oversized frontal lobe. Uh, you know, people like Arthur Kostler, a very uh, poetic and lyrical writer, but, you know, kind of willy-nilly when it comes to uh, the scientific theories he wants to, you know, kind of endorse. Yeah, he, he liked to make the connection between you know, the kind of explosion in brain pan size across, you know, hominin evolution and the kind of explosion of arsenal size across the Cold War. Uh, so, yeah, there's just kind of too much romantic stuff going on in the vicinity of it for me to find, like, think that it might actually be plausible. But, I mean, also on a wider level, um, the ultimate tribunal of fitness or, you know, maladaptiveness uh for human intelligence, ultimately, that remains a question to be answered. You know, until we reach uh, technological right. maturity or extinguish ourselves, uh, it remains an open question. But at the same time, in the interim, in, you know, intervening time, uh, I think that kind of intelligence is up to things that are perhaps can't be entirely exhaustively reduced to those that tribunal of you know adaptiveness or maladaptiveness. Um, so yeah, so you know maybe 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 it will turn out to be maladaptive, but at least we can you know to do plenty of good and fun things in the intervening intervening time. Yeah, it's it's great that you mentioned this kind of original sin stuff because I think it marks a really important uh, different perspective as well between existential risk being this force of nature that kind of attacks us and there's very little we can do about it versus this mindset that it's actually something that we can bring about ourselves or onto ourselves but that in turn also means that we have some sort of agency about it and um you mentioned uh kind of the cold war and stuff and we'll we'll get into that in a sec but kind of sticking with the victorian era as well you do kind of see that pop up a little bit in these ideas of social darwinism and uh i guess this classic like victorian prudence as well around like morality and uh moral decadence and stuff can you talk a bit about that yeah yeah so um yeah to to go back to the darwin stuff briefly um darwin was always uh he was somewhat disturbed by uh, examples of animals that had become more adaptive by sacrificing complexity because you know this doesn't chime well with the panglossian view of evolution as this kind of upsurge towards the more complex the better the more wise you know the more uh, anthropoid and so the major example for him was barnacle um and then one of his uh one of his friends um ray lancaster uh this victorian um you know, biologists, but he specialized in uh, crustaceans and mollusks. He wrote, I think it's the, I think it's the first book uh, integrating Darwinism with uh, parasitology. Um, and his major example was this, um, this uh, parasitic barnacle called the Sacalina um, that, like most barnacles, begins life as this kind of uh, differentiated being with, you know, a head and segments and legs. And when it reaches adulthood, when it attaches to the carapace of the crab that it's going to parasitize, uh, it um, kind of transforms into a, um, 
a blob, basically, an undifferentiated blob. So it becomes very uncomplex. Uh, it basically becomes a pseudo gonad underneath the crab, um, and the crab becomes tricked into nurturing the barnacle as if it's its own young. So there's there's something incredibly perverse about it. Imagine if you're a very prudent Victorian gentleman um, who wants to see complex upsurge in evolution and instead finds an animal becoming very good at doing what it does by basically, yeah, becoming, you know, this kind of gonad on the bottom of its host. But anyway, so this played into a theory that Lancaster had that was also riffing off a, a theme that was already there in Darwin, was that based on the parsimony of evolution, um, any you know any kind of trait that is no longer needed will eventually atrophy. So what happens with parasites is because they're relying instead on the inputs and influxes of the host, um, they lose their own sensory and locomotor organs. Now, Lancaster instantly made the very dubious and very Victorian leap from the parasites to human civilization and saw in the rising, uh, rising, you know, material wealth, material conditions across the developing world, developed world, um, basically the same evolutionary conditions uh, for the barnacle. And so, strangely enough, this inspired uh, at least two generations of biologists uh, and, you know, their kind of friends in the humanities to basically forecast that humanity was on this evolutionary path to destruction. Basically, the very successes of civilization in removing all of the kind of material stresses uh, or many of them from our our existence um, are in fact destroying us because they're kind of, you know, destroying our biological resilience. So all of these social Darwinistic kind of ideas came into play and yeah, it's 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 interesting uh, how much it preoccupied people. So uh, so through Lancaster, um, this idea inspired um, Huxley, who then taught H.G. Uh, Wells. H.G. Uh, Wells then was in contact with Aldous Huxley, and uh, also J.B.S. Haldane, J.D. Bernal, uh, these kind of proto-transhumanist figures. And all of them had their own version of Barnacle Apocalypse, where they thought that, you know, if humanity kind of gives up on all hardships, it'll eventually destroy itself. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, it, we might talk about this later, but it's it's a nice example of where, uh, yeah, where, you know, people have kind of got wound up in what now seem very obviously like dead ends when it comes to fears for the future. So, I mean, I obviously, I have to say, you know, there are, there are still, um, there are still, uh, versions of this idea, you know, so there's a paper on the Fermi paradox that basically says that, um, you know, all advanced civilizations, you know, invent fast food and then undergo metabolic collapse. Uh, the argument itself is a lot more complicated and persuasive. Is that Jeff Miller's paper? No, but it's a similar idea to Jeff Miller's one. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's very similar. Jeff Miller's is the um, uh, runaway consumerism explains the Fermi paradox. This one's by a team of metabolic scientists. Um, the lead author, I think, is called Nunn, uh, N-U-N-N. Um, but it, it goes to show that, you know, the, the, these ideas are, st- are still uh, canvassed. Uh, and I guess, yeah, we wouldn't, wanna, we wouldn't want to kind of... Um, dismiss them entirely out of hand just because some silly Victorians, you know, kind of melded them with nasty eugenic ideas. Um, 
but yeah i found it to be a very interesting episode in uh you know how yeah certain certain rather strange themes can kind of preoccupy people quite quickly you still get it in like pop culture as well right with like wally and this idea that we're all overweight in our like movable chairs and it's the ais that do all the work leaving us completely uh vulnerable to a potential takeover but maybe we'll get onto that uh, at the at the end I was going to mention, since we're on this topic of um, kinds of existential risk that are not forms of extinction, you mentioned David Pierce, who is obviously a contemporary philosopher and writer, um, and he has this kind of wonderful worry about a kind of weird doomsday scenario that might just be implied or recommended by the likes of certain ethical theories, like just classical utilitarianism. Can you say something about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, it, yes, this, this old idea... Um, I guess, yeah, you know, um, ethics that think that uh, um, removing suffering should be our absolute priority. Um, so <clears throat> obviously negative utilitarianism is uh, is one of those, but Schopenhauer and his followers also subscribed to that idea, but they weren't utilitarians in any kind of, uh, in, in any way at all. Um, Schopenhauer is more kind of deontological about the idea of removing suffering. Um but yeah, there, it leads to this idea that, yeah, you'd want to kind of um, just, yeah, destroy sufferers, uh, which is, yeah, you know, really kind of shocking and radical idea. And uh, yeah, Schopenhauer himself recommended this because he was, a, you know, the, probably the first antinatalist in the sense of extruding the actual conclusions of that to the extent of saying that it would cause human extinction. Um, then one of his followers, a guy called Edward von Hartmann, said that um, we should take that even further and remove the very possibility of life. So then later on, you get like this, arg- these arguments against negative utilitarianism that, you know, uh, so uh, Roderick Ninian Smart, in response to Karl Popper, uh, said that someone that holds to a negative utilitarian uh, framework would have to basically press the button to destroy the world. So this has kind of been uh, an argument to say that, um, you know, such ethical outlooks are like non-starters. They're like philosophical non-starters because you'd have to do this atrocious thing. Um, But then, yeah, David Pierce uh, kind of has this comeback to that where, um, you know, he says that uh, the classical utilitarian is also, you know, potentially going to uh, be led into such... um, troubling uh, conclusions because you know uh, if they were given a button they would kind of convert the entire universe all the energy and matter into it into homogenized utilitronium then they would be obliged to do so so yeah it's 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 a it's a long-running argument um i yeah i find it i find it interesting it's one of those examples where it's you know kind of uh, only makes sense in like very academic settings to talk about these kind these kind of things um but i mean david on a serious note david pierce does make the very important comment that you know ethicists don't tend to talk to cosmologists and vice versa but you know it might not be uh in cosmological time frames it might not be too long until those two things do impinge on each other so uh so you know we should probably figure out our ethics uh quite you know potentially quite quickly but um yeah, it's an interesting argument. Yeah, it definitely is. Okay, so jumping back on this kind of main thread of this story of thinking about existential risk, and um, I guess we're kind of moving into the 20th century now, and maybe the headline from you know the mid-20th century is the development of nuclear weapons, right? And with it, there's this kind of waking up 
to the possibility that humanity might be the source of its own um, existential catastrophe, right? Previously, you know, we've been thinking about comets and we've thinking about uh, natural forces, but here it's like very salient that we could just create something that ends up destroying us. But, you know, I, I guess another thought is, well, you know, there have been advances in weapons technology before, right? You get inventors of gunpowder and so on, and you get these kind of order of magnitude step-ups in um, the kind of power we have to wield over one another. What was special about developing nuclear weapons in particular with respect to this story? Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So, so yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that uh, people do noticeably start thinking about uh, anthropogenic extinction, omnicides, uh, after World War I. Um, and I think that might give a clue as to what then hammered that home with, you know, when we actually developed a kind of kill mechanism in World War Two is just the fact that it was the first war that was at least conceptualized as being kind of global in scope. Um, so you get people, yes, soon after World War One, kind of worrying about this, but in these very conjectural speculative settings. Yeah, like before this, people had only really worried about natural, uh, natural causes. Um, you can find, I mean, for example, Mary Shelley's like Last Man. It's a, it's a, it's a pandemic that kills humanity. But she does make a point. She does make an interesting point in there that it's actually the advancement of global interchange and global networks that allows it. So in a sense, that's kind of like quasi anthropogenic. But you you wouldn't count it as you know this kind of technological risk in the sense that we normally talk about them. The first person that I've you know found saying that humanity will destroy itself with its own technology is a Russian prince from 1844, uh, Vladimir Odeevsky. Uh, he says, you know, basically an ethics catastrophe like the one that we were just talking about, where humanity becomes so disillusioned and pessimistic uh, that it blows up the world. But yeah, to go back to kind of the two world wars, you get people talking about that after World War One. So, um, you know, Winston Churchill talks about the, you know, shall we commit suicide? He publishes this essay. Italo Sfevo, uh, an Italian writer, you know, he ends one of his books with this vision of kind of inventing a mega bomb. And this was written in uh, 1920s. But yeah, well, I think what's important about these ideas of kind of uh, human caused weapons, warfare, you know, uh, based destruction was floating around but they didn't really have anything to latch onto because it, you know, a lot of people before the bomb thought that such a destructive kind of, you know, technology was out of our reach. So um, there's a really interesting passage in Haldane uh, written in the late 1920s where he talks about um, basically, yeah, kind of long-term future of humanity and trajectories and risks uh, and reaches some really, really shockingly prescient conclusions uh, one of them is the comparison between background risk and technological risk. He says that we've existed for this long and haven't had a planet-ending disaster, so we can expect to exist further. Obviously, you know, he wasn't working with you know our new framework of observer selection effects and the ways that that can distort our judgments. But you know, it's nonetheless even with those things counted in. You know, the the recent paper by uh, Ord and uh, Snyder Beatty and um, uh, the other the other author alludes uh, me basically comes to the same conclusion. So Haldane was on the right track there. Uh, he also says that yeah, the only way that we would destroy ourselves is probably with our own technology. And then he says, so it's a good thing uh, that it seems like unlocking the atom is out of our reach. 
<laughs> so I think it was the year afterwards the Leo Slizzard, um, you know, I think he was going on a rainy walk in London and the, the, you know, the kind of chain reaction just occurs to him. And then history happened very quickly after that. Mm. And other people made similar comments around the time. Um, just to go back to Haldane briefly, he then goes on to say that if we do do that, that's actually perhaps a kind of, in some sense, a supreme tragedy because uh, civilization is is not an obvious invention. So we can't, even if humanity remains in this kind of, uh, you know, post-collapse uh, subsistence state, there's no uh, guarantee that the kind of, um, <clears throat> you know, that all the benefits of civilization will reemerge, which is, yeah, again, a sophisticated thing for someone to be saying in the 1920s. Um, but yeah, anyway, so, you know, I think, yeah, it's the, the, the global aspects of the, the way that the kind of our idea of a world encompassing war that ended in this, you know, awful event and also the way it kind of crept up on people as well. I think, you know, the one thing is a more pop culture thing and the latter is uh, perhaps, yeah, the, the effect that it had on intellectual communities. Um, yeah, and it wasn't long afterwards that people like Slizzard with themselves saying that, you know, I think it was 1951 that he came up with uh, the idea of the cobalt bomb, which was basically, yeah, a bomb. He said it was very feasible that we might make it a bomb that would create enough fallout to sterilize the earth. So I think that goes some way to explaining why it was this, you know, humongous event. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, You mentioned the Fermi paradox then, and I want to talk about that. And actually, there's a nice continuity, if I'm remembering right, between the story of the nuclear bomb and the, the story of the Fermi paradox. So maybe, first of all, just can you tell that story and also say a little bit about SETI as well, kind of skipping forward a few decades and spoiler alert what they, what they ended up finding. Yeah, yeah. So that there is a very nice uh, historical, um, uh, yeah, kind of I guess uh, resonance between these two kind of in, what might yeah kind of otherwise separate things. So it was on the site of uh, the Manhattan Project, uh, Los Alamos, um, Fermi and uh, Edward Teller. Um, and a few of the other kind of major architects of, you know, the nuclear age um, were walking to lunch um, and Fermi, uh, they were talking about um, this article in the newspaper where a bunch of uh, waste paper bins had gone missing from New York and um, the, one of the theses was that aliens had abducted the bins. Uh, and so there was a cartoon in the, I think it was the New York Times um depicting these aliens stealing our, our bin resources. Um, and Teller, Fermi, uh, were talking about this, you know, silly little cartoon. And uh, Fermi apparently kind of blurted out the question, well, where, where is everyone then? So, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot going into that question. So it's this, you know, it's why haven't we seen evidence of extraterrestrial life anywhere? Uh, or extraterrestrial intelligence, um, but more so, why is it not already here? Um, so, you know, if intelligent life had kind of, you know, gained a, a foothold uh, beyond, you know, kind of planetary confines, you can expect they would spread. And yeah, so there was this, you know, idea that if they, if they ever had, if anyone had ever done that, we'd kind of see the evidence for it on our own, you know, in our own kind of backyard. So, yeah, the history of the Fermi paradox is, is a really interesting one. Um, so 
I, I believe when Fermi first asked that question, he was saying it in that context of uh, why hasn't anyone arrived? And, you know, it's later become intensified in loads of different ways. So uh, it just circulated as this kind of, uh, you know, loose question idea uh, throughout scientific communities in the 50s and 60s. So, uh, for example, you know, um, you can find a talk of Fred Hoyle, the uh, British physicist, uh, talking about it in 1964, he says the famous question, where is everyone, asked by Edward Teller. So he attributed it wrongly. But you can see that people, the, the, the scientific community was talking about this at the time. Um, and so in tandem with this, so um, was, yeah, the beginnings of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, so Frank Drake uh, started, uh, kind of, you know, kickstarted it in, in a concerted sense with Project Osma, which was the first, it was basically the first search for radio signals. Uh, it was a green bank. In, it was in uh, 1960 or 1961. And at least amongst Drake and his colleagues, so Carl Sagan um, and a couple of other notable scientists, people thought that we'd, you know, switch our kind of radio telescopes on and unveil a noisy galaxy. So there's there's high optimism about contact um at least in some circles and yeah they didn't discover anything uh and you know then the russians uh the soviets uh started kind of pursuing similar projects uh still no sign of anything so yeah so throughout the 60s this kind of silence grew um from the very beginning, uh, the Fermi lunch, where he had first asked the question, it does appear that the obvious answer under this kind of oppressive, ominous Cold War context uh, that appeared to people was basically the bomb, was, you know, um, the explanation that, yeah, kind of alien civilizations here, elsewhere, um, well, intelligent civilizations, sorry, here and elsewhere, uh, reached this point of te technical aptitude where they develop, you know, nukes and then annihilate themselves eventually. Um, so there are lots of reasons why this isn't a persuasive explanation. Um, but this was the, the kind of one of the more popular and prominent ones throughout this period. Mm -hmm. So as SETI kind of continued to return nothing, the Fermi paradox in the 70s started to be talked about as the Fermi paradox. And in the Soviet context, they actually intensified it in a very interesting way with uh, the work of Nikolai Kardashev and Josef Shklovsky, uh, these two very prominent so uh, Soviet astrophysicists, where basically they, you know, it wasn't, doesn't just have to be a question of why haven't the aliens arrived on Earth and left evidence of themselves. It's the question that we can't see anything anywhere. So, you know, if it was the case that an intelligent life had kind of colonized and uh, domesticated its galaxy you know in another galaxy we presume be able to see that so there's this question that so you find in certain soviet texts is why don't we see any galaxies in the shape of platonic solids which i think is you know it's a, it's a very interesting question but um yeah the basic idea is that you know if if it is the case that uh intelligence anywhere has kind of gained a significant foothold within its cosmic environment, it would be, probably be very visible to us. So Shklovsky called this the lack of cosmic miracles. And so, yeah, it, you know, it becomes, uh, it becomes quite, quite ominous. And then as a final kind of episode in this story, during the 80s, uh, 
uh, Tipler and Hart uh, both do these calculations on interstellar colonization, uh, where previously the mood had been that this was probably, you know, infeasible, uh, you know, physically impossible. This mood shifted a bit. People started to think it might be feasible. And yeah, Tipler and Hart both, uh, you know, did these kind of calculations to show how basically colonization of the, an entire galaxy could happen in basically a very a cosmologically very quick period of time, uh, which again intensifies the paradox because, you know, clearly no one has done that yet. Um, so, so, you know, the way that this is um, fed into uh, thinking about existential risk is an important one. So, you know, you get references to the Fermi paradox in uh, Bostrom's original paper on existential risk. Uh, Hansen's paper on the Great Filter is obviously engaging with it. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, besides being, in my opinion, one of the most important questions, uh, potentially, you know, ever, it's also important because it's uh, by stressing uh, our potential loneliness, and you know we can yeah talk about this uh, more more if you want. But by stressing that, it, yeah, it's kind of uh, further intensified this sense of our potential responsibility as well. I, I'm just curious to know what's your favourite answer to the Fermi paradox, and I don't mean what do you think is most likely. I mean like what do you find most interesting. Yeah, so um, my favourite one, uh, and I'm I'm glad that you specify with uh, not not most plausible because uh, yeah, the most plausible one is probably the most boring, as though you know perhaps we are actually alone, um, and therefore it's not even a paradox to begin with. But um, uh, my favourite one in terms of kind of uh, aesthetic payload uh, is uh, one by Stanislav Lem, uh, and. Um, in in Sirkovic's uh, brilliant book, The Great Silence, that I recommend, he picks it up and calls it the new new cosmogony. Basically, uh, it's in it's in this fantastic uh, book of reviews of false books of fictional books uh, by Lem, and it's this yeah it's it's this kind of um, address given by this fictional scientist who uh, has kind of revolutionised our view of the universe. Um, and his theory is an explanation to the Fermi paradox, basically starting off from the idea that, you know, intelligence uh, is, in many ways, you can think of it as a kind of tendency to manipulate its environment. So, you know, as, as you know, humanity has kind of spilled out over the planet, uh, the, the, you know, we've kind of manipulated our environment at more intensive and extensive scales. But and we're already already seeing the beginnings of this now uh, is that that itself causes a kind of collapse between the artificial and the natural. Uh, so, you know, we talk about this when it comes to stuff like mm. the Anthropocene and, uh, you know, the technosphere, right, as this kind of uh, hypothesized kind of uh, new addition to the Earth system on top of the biosphere and the lithosphere. Uh, which is the total quantity of artificial matter. Uh, and there's a paper, I think, quantifying it around 30 trillion tons. So it's, you know, quite an impressive object. But basically that, that kind of collapses, uh, you know, the distinction between artificial and natural. Um, and so Lem has this really interesting conjecture and you can find it in a couple of other places in sci-fi and uh, kind of future studies, is that, you know, as an intelligence becomes more advanced, uh, it you know becomes able to manipulate more and more that distinction between artificial and natural collapses further and further and at some point of you know advancement uh an intelligence basically becomes indistinguishable from its environment because it controls it 
at such a fine-grained and extensive level that the environment is basically just the intelligence. Uh, so basically, yeah, Lem's kind of mouthpiece, this fictional scientist, uh, hypothesizes that you know the universe that we live in is filled with these kind of vast ancient uh, super intelligences that uh, you know basically what we observe as the laws of nature, the laws of physics are the artifacts of these intelligences and they're kind of you know almost like demiurges and they interact with each other by kind of tweaking the laws of nature in certain directions and so yeah we can you know kind of see our own existence as caused by uh you know so it's, i don't know i just love i love these aspects of uh science fiction where uh kind of basically theistic uh ideas are kind of reintegrated through the back door uh, in entirely physicalistic uh, naturalistic kind of uh, um, outlooks so yeah you know Arthur C. Clarke is also a master of doing that but um, yeah this Lem story is uh, is absolutely fantastic uh, it's my favorite explanation to the Fermi paradox yeah. So I guess this puts us at what is you know quite a pessimistic end to this whole tale so we talked before about how in the 17 and maybe even the 1800s you had this cosmic nonchalance where we thought well at least life will will somehow find a way but then it seems at least from from the state where we are at now this is not guaranteed and you term it uh cosmic loneliness which is what we're feeling now and that makes us think, okay, well, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? How why we think about how our understanding of X risks uh, evolves in the future? And is there anything we can do about it? So I think just to close off this history, it'd be really nice if you could maybe talk a bit about these more optimistic plans for some of these massive engineering projects that you talked about. And um, yeah, in inspire a bit of hope into us about uh, how we might invent our way out of this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so the, the, the cosmic loneliness, it's um, troubling. And, um, you know, ever since even prior to SETI, um, funnily enough, in the 1950s, there are people beginning to be like, oh, we are quite lonely in the universe. So there has been this growing sense of uh, potential cosmic loneliness uh, for a while now. Um, and yes, of course, it's troubling, but it's only kind of troubling in the sense that we feel cut off from this promised inheritance of living in this populous, noisy, value-laden galaxy. As soon as, you know, as soon as we kind of leave that to the wayside and, you know, realize the, the, the issues with that presumption, I feel that, yeah, it uh, is no means for despondence. Um, so there are a couple of reasons for this. What, you know, so one is um, that, you know, the arguments coming from the great filter, uh, so you know, uh, Nick Bostrom and Robin Hansen have both uh, made arguments to this, you know, to this uh, effect that the, 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 the kind of great silence uh, implies that there is something that, you know, obstructs inorganic matter from flourishing into a galactic civilization at some point. So, you know, it makes sense to kind of think that this would, these might be these kind of major evolutionary or civilizational transitions. So, yeah, then the question becomes, is it before us or is it ahead of us so yeah you know the more common uh life is in the universe the more likely that you know for obvious reasons the more likely that the great filter is ahead of us um so the idea of cosmic loneliness the idea of the absence of signs of anything else uh implies that maybe the great filter is behind us so it's actually good news in that sense so you know we you know i'm sure we all know that argument it's a, it's a, i think it's a brilliant argument but then another one is, uh, 
sense of also cosmic significance. So Joseph Shklovsky is a, a good example here. Uh, so he was engaged in early SETI, was a massive optimist about it, uh, you know, co-authored this book with Carl Sagan on intelligence in the universe. Um, he thought that intelligence was rife throughout, uh, throughout the cosmos. And then by the time of the 1980s, uh, I think it was 1977, he gives this speech on cosmic loneliness and his, yeah, says that he's completely changed his mind, you know, given the lack of uh, ready evidence, uh, etc. But basically makes this point um, where he says that the responsibility and the importance of the in tasks upon, you know, hum humankind grow with our sense of the exclusivity of them. Uh, so there are many ways of cashing this out. Uh, one of them is, you know, the potential for the massive consequences of our actions in the here and now. So if it is the case that uh, most of the galaxy is kind of barren and sterile and not up to much in the sense of doing anything valuable, then we actually have the potential for a humongous impact. Uh, you know, if these other, if, if these other uh, systems were populated with civilizations going about their, you know, um, their different kind of valuable pursuits, then that would be less so. So it gives this uh, sense of our potential to actually have a massive impact upon, you know, our kind of local vicinity, uh, which I think, yeah, you know, is a heavy duty, but it's also in a sense a positive one. So yeah, it links onto this, you know, what I said uh, a lot earlier on is that, uh, you know, kind of existential risk and the recognition of existential hope are kind of two sides of the same mm. coin. Yeah, and I guess in... I, mean, I think practical is kind of the wrong word when you talk about this kind of stuff. But like um, when, when you talk about, OK, how can we avoid these X risks and and what kind of inventions or what kind of big picture plans might we have here? Um, you know, today, when you think about X risks, you think about AI, you think about climate change, even uh, in, in its worst cases. We have the ongoing COVID pandemic, which shows some some real key vulnerabilities. Right. Um, where would you look to to the future um, to to? kind of think a bit about let's say uh if if listeners want to do something about it what are the the key areas where you think uh more research is is worthwhile mm, yeah well i i think yeah any any research to do with existential risk or you know uh mitigating that is is yeah we need to spend a lot more resources on that um uh and the, yeah there are far better minds than mine to say what how we should allocate those resources um, but yeah, I also, one thing I think is a good thing would be like education, a lot more education on these ideas and, you know, um, communication, I guess. Um, so the wider kind of, you know, wider audiences would, would, uh, become potentially become interested in them. That's one of the kind of goals of what, what you know, writing history is because, uh, a lot of people, you know, for good reasons or unjust reasons, kind of take ideas seriously if they have a kind of edifying history behind them uh so you know i thought i could make some small contribution in that sense um but yeah i think i think more people need to realize how important uh these ideas are and the movements behind them yeah so now that we've kind of finished this this big narrative as well of of kind of seeing how our understanding of X risks has has changed over time. One of the things we touched about, especially on the the first half of this conversation, is how these you know really clever people were still kind of products of 
their wider social context and uh, the the paradigm and of that kind of intellectual climate of the time. And you know, you you can't help but think if if these super smart people like like Plato and uh, like Kant and and Darwin were products of their time, are we not also products of our time? And I know this is uh, an impossible question to ask in many ways, but what do you kind of think might be some of the current thinkings that are keeping us back and if you were to write this book a hundred years in the future again uh looking back what do you think will be some of the developments that we'll we'll finally recognize yeah yeah it's a fantastic question um yeah uh yeah i mean of course it's impossible to well it's it's very 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 hard already to forecast the future of intellectual changes um not impossible though i stress but uh even more so is it hard to forecast how our errors will be yeah thought of in the future but yeah no um uh i'm not sure yeah misnomers uh maybe limitations i think um again yeah to go back to you know this kind of idea of hope i think that more of a stress of hope potentially needs to be uh integrated and made more prominent perhaps um so i don't think that that's necessarily a lack but i think it will become more developed um and more I guess, yeah, ramified and, you know, mature. Because I guess a level of maturity has potentially come to the framework of thinking about existential risk, at least in its kind of current iteration. And yeah, I do think there is a level of maturity that didn't exist, uh, you know, uh, a couple of decades ago, um, you know, through, through the work of, you know, all these kind of institutions uh, and these major thinkers on the topic there is a level of maturity and rigor that just didn't exist before. I think, yeah, maybe one one development that would be good is thinking more about, yeah, these kind of visions of like, what would be a big win? What would be, you know, what would look like the uh, best possible outcome for humanity? What does this kind of nebulous thing that we talk about, civilizational maturity, technological maturity, what does that look like? How can we think about it? Because this has been a theme that people have been, you know, thinking about for a long time. You know, Kant said that enlightenment is the assumption of maturity for the human species. Um, Carl Sagan said, used the picked up the same metaphor uh, when he said that we're going through our technological adolescence. Uh, mm. And then, you know, Nick Bostrom also talks about technological maturity as a kind of, you know, um, the most kind of technological control and manipulation of nature that is um, kind of physically feasible. Um, but there are other frameworks and other models for thinking about uh, about these kind of big wins. Um, so yeah, I think that, that that that's a that's a place that has further maturing to do. Um, yeah, obviously, I think that you know Anders Sandberg, the work he's doing there is 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 instrumental. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's in a sense of you know looking into the crystal ball. Uh, I think that that's that's a place that needs further development. Just just to round up, I want to touch on this point you made about potential grand futures for humanity. I found it interesting that so many of the characters from the book and that you've talked about um, are sci-fi writers, right? Maybe that's just a function of how like weird um, ideas about existential risk were and probably still are. And I wanted to ask, are there particular writers or like uh, works of fiction that really kind of um, inspire you for like visions of futures that we could arrive at and also that kind of address existential risk in like an interesting way I, in a sense I'm unfortunately like very much the wrong person to ask that question to because I, I, mean, I guess to, to, I spend too much of my time reading old stuff but um, but in terms of older stuff uh, 
I think Olaf Stapledon is massively underread uh, these days. Um, so he was part of the same, uh, you know, kind of community as Haldane and Bernal. So this kind of proto-transhumanist outlook. And he's, he wrote a whole bunch of really interesting books that I think are underappreciated today, particularly, you know, when it comes to grand futures. So he wrote this book, Star Maker and Last and First Men, which is basically just, you know, the history of humanity for the entire future of the cosmos. It goes into absolutely cosmological timescales and ha- like is just a, a compendium of really interesting theses about what could go wrong what could go right you know catastrophes and big wins um it's a library of fantastic ideas um you know which you know having done history i i you know i am well disposed to appreciate how often science fiction preempts genuine you know genuine theory making um, and yeah, also Stanislav Lem, he's, he's, he's brilliant. And uh, even though it's not necessarily a fiction work, his uh, book, Summer Technology, is, yeah, again, it's just a mine of earlier thinking. Um, yeah, so it's because it's, one of the things that happened recently is you, you kind of, I think it's to do with the internet. You get a critical mass uh, in the 90s, transhumanists come together to think about this stuff. You know, they worry a lot about grey goo. It doesn't necessarily kind of manifest in, in the timescale. Uh, then, you know, in the noughties, the rationalist community. Uh, then, you know, in the tens, you get the effective altruism community. Uh, these are community building moments where, you know, a new technology basically allows a lot of dif- disparate people to come together and rally around their own uh, unified goals and ideas. Uh, you get earlier on these kind of disparate geniuses kind of separate and outside of these networks uh, or just small communities, I should say. Um, and Lem was very much one of these. He kind of does a lot of the groundwork completely by himself and um, <clears throat> in this book, uh, The Summer. And then, yeah, uh, kind of is perhaps potentially a dead end in a sense because not many people read him now. And the book was only translated into English very recently. Uh, but yeah, I'd recommend him uh, massively. Um, one last thing I was wondering is, broadly speaking, what's the point of doing intellectual history? It's obviously super interesting, but can it also be like a guide to action? Mm, yeah, yeah, great question. Uh, so yeah, my uh, very strong intuition is that um, as you say, aside from being interesting in an antiquarian sense, um, it's also can be a very constructive endeavor. So, I mean, my first point, I would say that uh, in kind of, you know, action oriented communities like effective altruism and, you know, affiliated uh, spaces, there is already a lot of history in some of the foundational concepts. So path is hinge of history, the idea that we are potentially the most influential generation a lot of his other ideas, so one of his major motivations is this idea that we're at the very beginning of uh, non-religious ethics. Also, his idea of climbing the mountain, the idea that there's a convergence across, um, you know, what seem to be diverging moral uh, positions. Uh, that implies some sense of historical progress. I mean, his idea that, you know, uh, there are kind of ethical facts out there, you know, uh, that implies that there is this pro- pro- progressive convergence and that's something that could only happen, you know, in history. Um, so, yeah, I mean, from, from my kind of uh, ideas of the method and, you know, what can be achieved with intellectual history, uh, I think there are two, two main approaches. There's critical and uh, constructive. 
so the critical is uh, ways of looking at the emergence and development of ideas to see where uh, potentially irrational factors are still in play in our current usage of them. Uh, so, you know, basically a genetic account of the origin of our beliefs. Uh, so a good example of that is some work that um, I've been doing with with Anders Sandberg on uh, the history of the idea of wireheading. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really, really fun history. But uh, wireheading being the idea that, you know, if we, uh, through technology, get kind of direct access to the, you know, quote unquote, pleasure centers, reward systems of the brain, uh, people would be kind of, you know, basically motivatedly, motivationally short circuited so that they would, you know, kind of pursue uh, direct pleasure rather than any kind of uh, more constructive um, pursuits, uh, you know, which rests in these you know, experiments from the 1950s on rats that, you know, pushed levers that would stimulate mm. their septal areas. Um, but what we found through looking at the history of the ideas of this is that the, all of the component ideas of the wirehead myth pre-existed any of that uh, animal behavior uh, stuff from the 50s. You can find it in so many different areas prior to any kind of uh, empirical scientific evidence being put forward to support this myth. So, you know, basically from there, you can make the argument, I think, that, you know, there are some mythical factors in play here. So perhaps pre-theoretical biases where basically the idea just kind of... uh, you know, um, resonates with some of our kind of aesthetic predilections. Uh, and, you know, so that's that's the kind of critical way of doing it. On the constructive side, uh, I think the, the history of ideas gives a sense of uh, how far we've come. Um, so, you know, technologies are very tangible. You can look at a technology, a steam engine, a computer, uh, and, you know, see that this was something that didn't exist beforehand. With ideas, it's slightly less so, but in many ways, uh, they're just as important and influential. So particularly with ideas around, um, you know, human extinction, human extinction and, um, you know, kind of worst case scenarios, it's very easy for people to see, you know, that we're living potentially uh, in this period where more and more risks are kind of clouding on the horizon. You know, it's less easy to see that we in the past generation have had this kind of uh, vast growth in insight around that topic. And so I think it can be helpful to see, uh, you know, basically to show, you know, that aside from these kind of tangible risks, that we're actually far better than ever before uh, in terms of thinking about them and therefore potentially mitigating them. So, you know, there are, again, when we talk about influentialness, you know, there I've seen arguments that perhaps the first humans, you know, kind of on the savannah were some of the most influential people that ever existed. So, you know, the, the argument goes that they could have locked in values that have therefore, you know, kind of affected the whole entire course of human history. I think that's completely wrong because, you know, on, you know, one definition of influence, it requires kind of informed decision, uh, you know, and people back then just didn't have that. So I think, you know, by showing through the historical, you know, com- accumulation and growth of our insight, uh we can show that we are now more influential than, you know, anyone before. And so, yeah, I think, you know, there are also philosophical insights to be gained from it. I think that, uh, you know, things, quite philosophical things like uh, normativity, um, objectivity, you know, both of these things um, are basically, you can't understand them outside of um, history. 
So the way I'd explain that is that, you know, one of the things that distinguishes normative constraints from, you know, kind of natural constraints, uh, you could argue, is that we choose to follow normative constraints. Similarly, with objectivity, I think that the kind of aboutness uh, of statements um, requires the ability for the statements to even be wrong. Because uh, if your statements about the world can't be wrong, then how can they be objective? So the arena within which statements are wrong or we institute and revise um, our norms is history. So I think you can't really uh, talk about those things without some sense of the historical background um, or at least that kind of novel insights can be built out of uh, doing historical work. Uh, and then finally, you know, kind of having said all that, you know, how can it inform action? Uh, and to go back to this hinge of history idea, you know, are we potentially, um, you know, I don't like the kind of strongest version of it, that we are the most influential generation, you know, uh, but the kind of less strong version that we are potentially one of the most important. Um, I think that one of the arguments against that is by William McCaskill, he calls it the inductivist argument. So if you look back uh, in time, you know, people have generally gradually become, uh, gained more and more insight, more kind of moral, um, you know, more progress has been this gradual thing that's happened across time. So you look to the past and then you induce forwards and you say, oh no, so the next generations will continue gradually to become more and more, you know, steadily more and more um, endowed with insight. Uh, therefore, you know, perhaps it would be a better idea to, uh, instead of spending resources now, save them for the future. So when I first encountered that argument, you know, from my perspective, kind of looking at the way that ideas appear and grow and uh, emerge, I was kind of struck by the, the simplicity of the gradual aspect of that, this idea that there's a very gradual, steady, cumulative, you know, consistent, continuous growth. Uh, I think that's absolutely not the case. When it comes to important ideas um, in science and you know philosophy and ethics, uh, they tend to um, have that gradual growth implicitly, but then there'll be this kind of quick phase where it'll suddenly become explicit. And then you know there's a fast-paced movement where that kind of you know the low-hanging fruit around the idea get picked. That area of knowledge reaches a level of maturity quite quickly. So, yeah, my sense is that from, you know, I think there's a punctuated equilibrium of insight rather than, you know, this kind of gradualist idea. So I would, you know, my sense is I would be very surprised if, uh, you know, keeping it to rather kind of near term kind of statements, I'd be surprised if within a next generation or even two or maybe three uh, that we gain like a lot more insight in the vicinity of uh, kind of particularly things like existential risk. Now, of course, I think that that could be, you know, I'm not saying that with much confidence. I'm saying that, um, you know, I could be very much be proven wrong there. But that's my sense from looking at the kind of uh, growth and development of ideas. It's, it's not particularly gradual in that kind of simplified way. That's a great answer. I like what you said about um, this bit in Parfit where he he says that he sees this kind of secular ethics that he's doing as something very new and you hear this kind of pessimistic take which is something like well look it's well and good to do ethics but people have been thinking and writing about ethical questions for like thousands of years right and it doesn't look like we've made a whole lot of progress because you look around you see that people are still disagreeing um and it takes doing history of ideas 
it takes like really carefully looking back at the arguments that have gone before us to see in this example that maybe the methods those people were using are like importantly distinct from what people are doing now, which is this kind of secular, rational or like critical approach to ethics. And that's like a really hopeful, um, encouraging conclusion because it, it means that there is at least this kind of prospect for progress rather than this kind of hamster wheel of like dead ends. And yeah, again, it seems like you get that from doing intellectual history. So um, I, uh, yeah, I like that thought. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, you know, this is a kind of a new, you know, area of research that I, I really want to kind of, you know, invest in a lot now. Um, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. There's something very hopeful about that. And it's it's not surprising at all, right? The Parfit himself was kind of trained as a historian, uh, you know, then realized his calling was a philosopher, um, you know, based on biographical um, quirks. But um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's from having a grounding in history that you can diffuse uh, that pessimistic claim about um, moral progress. Yeah, and one thing that I really want to look at is... Uh, you know, we have had this short period of time and we can argue about when it began that uh, this kind of new approach to uh, thinking through ethics um, has emerged. You know, perhaps we could trace it to the Enlightenment, perhaps later. But it'd be really interesting to see, you know, and I'm, the methodology would be up for up for question, but uh, it'd be really interesting to see if there has been any uh, convergence upon uh, maybe not issues of kind of meta-ethics, but issues of actual like practical uh, you know, practical ethics. And uh, the thing that, uh, the thing that leaps to mind is, you know, kind of animal issues. There seems to be, you know, there are different, there are voices across all kinds of different, um, starting positions that seem to be kind of, uh, reaching some similar conclusions. Uh, so you've got, you know, Christine course guards, you know, she's a deontologist. Uh, she talks about how, uh, you know, we need to kind of be better when it comes to animals. Uh, and then of course, all the all of the voices from uh, you know more utilitarian crowds saying similar things. Uh, so, but yeah, it'd just be I'd love to um, to look further into that and see if there are actually ways of kind of testing the climbing the mountain uh, hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with uh, you about like, the animal liberation stuff. I think it's so interesting, and I think it's so interesting just like how the rigor of that has really exploded, um, where it's kind of gone from. I mean, I guess like intellectually, right? Like from that like more hippie movement that was like, you know, very well-intentioned, um, but didn't really go beyond like the obvious, just showing people cruelty to these like really sophisticated arguments. And I was like looking in some of the, the economics literature in it now, where they're really, you know, like trying to integrate it into social welfare functions and, you know, treating it with elasticities and trade-offs and like all that like rich literature behind it. I think it's it's super exciting and I'm I'm really like keen and, to, to see where it's going to develop in the in the next couple of years mm, yeah yeah i think it would provide like a potentially a really good case study of history in the making uh, of ways of look yeah looking at uh, yeah you know moral progress or what, whatever you want to call it and kind of testing if uh, testing if we can see it kind of you know concretely happening um yeah and you know talking about kind of wishy-washy precursors it would be i'm interested in ways of taking that kind of idea away from its roots and you know hegelian ideas of there being this kind of you know uh 
insuperable upsurge of you know progress and yeah seeing like you know can we actually uh no like can we treat this more in a, in a perhaps i guess more rigorous and scientific way um mm. yeah yeah and i think yeah like you say animal liberation is a really good except potential case study for that yeah so i was going to ask uh, another question which i think kind of actually links into this uh which is this kind of idea of looking at intellectual history or kind of like i guess looking into the past and then reflecting into the present and the future. And I know I asked a, a similar one last time uh, already, but what I wanted to get at is one of the things that kind of struck me from from reading your book is that, um, you know, there were clearly a lot of breakthroughs um, by some very smart people, but there were also a lot of very bad predictions. So like in particular, I'm thinking of predicting the world was going to end in X thousand years. And that clearly doesn't seem to hold up to scientific rigor but it kind of made me wonder that if we take the same mindset now how you feel about some of the discussions of current existential risks that are very topical so i think especially about things like ai i'd be really curious to hear what your perspective is from that kind of intellectual history viewpoint and if this is something we should be really concerned about or if it's just something where we don't really know the facts and there might be a tendency to to overreact in in cases of such disruption yeah yeah that's that's a fantastic question um so i think again this does kind of link into what we were just talking about is there are the kind of critical and constructive faces of doing history um and if you want to put the more constructive spin on, you know, there are so many, there's like, you know, the book in itself is, uh, or any project that would be, be along these lines would always inevitably end up being a mountain of errors. You know, it's just kind of picking through and finding all these places where people have said stuff that was interesting, but ultimately completely wrong, you know, sometimes profoundly, ludicrously, you know, uh, uh, insanely wrong, um, other times less so. But yeah, the point I, I'm making is that, um, you know, it's the error of, it's the errors of kind of precursors that are the condition for us knowing more. So that's the kind of, that's the spin I would put on it. And so, you know, uh, Buffon's like a great example because yeah, you know, he kind of did this charming experiment in his basement, uh, you know, heating up these iron globes and then, uh, you know, letting them cool down. And that was how he predicted the end of the world. And, you know, obviously, like you say, it doesn't hold up to scientific rigor now, but the actual methodology was at the time uh, just so innovative and along the right lines was it was actually one of the first times someone had like basically used physicalistic experimental uh, methods to try and create a kind of, you know, uh, forecast for planetary habitability and so, yeah, you know, you can you can look back and see the places where he failed. But in many ways, uh, that was like an incredibly innovative thing to do. Um, and, you know, I think there are plenty of complete dead ends in the book as well. And, I, I you know, I think it's kind of charming and interesting to look at them. Um, so, you know, I don't think everything has to be this kind of Whiggish history of it being this is a place where someone innovated. And, you know, I think it's nice to see the kind of entire tree of, uh, you know, kind of ideas in the same way the tree of life is kind of full of extinctions as well. But yeah, so to go on to the question of how that relates to the current day. Um, yeah, I think uh, that I, the, I find that the AI stuff personally very persuasive um, because of the... Um, the, the 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 kind of uniqueness of it as an invention so you know a lot of people have basically for every technology and i'm sure this is kind of the the angle you were perhaps thinking about when you were asking the question is for every technology uh there's been a perfect you know some kind of doomsday uh soothsaying project you know projection about it destroying the world you know for every major 
technology, you can find someone saying this is the end. You know, uh, you know, in the book we find fast food was you know people saying that that's going to destroy the world. You know, so for everything you can find someone saying that that technology is going to do it. But I think it's because there's something. It's not just quantitatively different about uh, artificial intelligence. It's like a qualitative leap. Uh, you know, in the sense that uh, it would be able to invent its own technologies. So it's like, you know, the, the whole kind of, um, you know, the last invention, that kind of aspect of it does make it, uh, yeah, qualitatively different. So, yeah, I think that that's, that's my personal view on it. Um, mm. But, yeah, more generally, um, yeah, I think that doing doing a history and seeing how how many times everyone was wrong uh you know again i think that's actually a hopeful thing uh the fact that we can even be wrong in the first place means that we're a historical species that can correct itself and hopefully ultimately get better so um yeah i think that's how i'd answer that yeah no i i i agree and i think it's it's interesting i think especially about ai where there are often a lot of people drawing parallels i think so less with like the extinction risks per se but like with the automation stuff you keep hearing about its comparisons to the industrial revolution which is really interesting and i think in a lot of cases warranted but also in a lot of cases not warranted and i think more generally it's it's interesting to see where we can learn from history and where we have to go no this is generally something new and where we need to apply all our our tools again mm, yeah definitely yeah yeah that's fantastic. And uh, we just have two last questions, quick fire ones, which we ask everyone. Um, I'm going to reverse the order because the second one is, is more relevant, which is what three books or articles, films, whatever, would you recommend for anyone listening to this and interested in finding out more about what we've talked about? Uh, yeah, so um, the first one I'd recommend is uh, Milan Serkovic's The Great Silence. So uh, the subtitle is The Science and Philosophy of the Fermi Paradox. I think it came out in 2019. Yeah, it's just, again, a compendium, uh, an absolutely fascinating tour through all of the all of the explanations to the Fermi paradox, what they mean. Um, it's also like it's also not just a kind of uh, litany in the sense of, you know, kind of list of different things. Uh, it's also kind of very systematic as well. And uh, extrudes and extracts the you know the really deep philosophical issues with it um so absolutely uh it's one of yeah it's one of my favorite books ever so i'd, I'd highly recommend that and yeah for a second one uh this is if any, any listeners are kind of potentially interested in this idea that um a lot of the ideas that we now take for granted are not just in kind of these thick ideas you know like extinction just you know kind of quite uh simple ideas that we use every single day like like modal logic talking about possibility uh and how those like the ability to even kind of think about counterfactuals in the way we do didn't previously previously exist yeah if anyone's kind of interested in that um and also just interested in uh the history of ideas and doing it rigorously um it's a book called reforging the great chain of being um, studies in the history of modal theories, uh, edited by um, Simon Attila, and it's basically a um, it's a it's an edited volume. It's a tour through um, the principle of plenitude and its uses abuses throughout the history of philosophy. So quite technical, you know. There's a lot of logic and stuff in it, but it's it's incredibly interesting seeing how 
these seemingly innocent ideas can just distort our entire world picture. Uh, and then for the third one, uh, it's going to be uh, J.D. Bernal's uh, The World, the Flesh and the Devil. Um, you know, it's aged because, you know, writing about the future in the 1920s is, yeah, you know, that's a long time ago. But it's aged in informative ways. And I think it's also just a really charming and uh, brilliant book about thinking about the long term future of humanity. It connects together thinking about risks and also thinking about uh, grand futures. And it's just really well written as well. So I think as a sense, I think as a sense that, you know, the ideas that, you know, you know, people kind of who are interested in existential risk and kind of affecting the world in a positive way, just to show that those ideas are kind of rooted in this tradition. Um, I think that that's a useful touchstone for that. Mm, fantastic. The very last question is, uh, what significant thing have you recently changed your mind about and why? Um, yeah, so it was quite recently that I kind of uh, came to this four ages framework. I don't think we, we haven't spoken about it too much, but uh, that there's this kind of you know indestructibility of value, then the cosmic nonchalance, and then the cosmic loneliness, and now we have this kind of more modern sense of uh, potentially astronomical significance. Part of that is the just the realization that value in the world can be minimized and maximized. Um, and I've only just very recently realized how potentially significant and rich as like a philosophical, historical, uh, mine that could be to dig down into. Yeah. It just struck me very recently how absolutely significant. And I said this earlier that we take that for granted and it's just seen as this, you know, uh, this fundamental part of our, um, you know, it affects policy, it affects everything. It's kind of part of the just common sense of the modern world. But I'm I'm not sure what it rests on. I want to do a lot more research on that. So, is that, yeah, um, I've changed my mind recently on thinking that that might be one of the most kind of important discoveries that humanity's ever made. Um, and I want to do a lot more work to figure out why. So previously I'd have been like, oh, of course it's extinction. But now I think, you know, that's just a nested part of this wider thing of the realisation that, yeah, value is mutable and could be minimized and maximized. Uh, and yeah, I'm, you know, there are histories of, you know, there are some histories out there of, uh, you know, what inspired kind of, you know, Bentham and Mill and to, you know, to provide their insights mm -hmm. on that. But yeah, I, I think there's a lot more groundwork to be done there. Mm -hmm. Well, there's your next book. Um, okay. Final, final question is where can people find you online and also where can people find your book? Um, yeah, so uh, Thomas Moynihan, uh, it's spelt phonetically. It's a strange surname, though. Thomas Moynihan.xyz uh, is my website. So I kind of uh, keep that updated with um, stuff that I've been writing. And um, uh, yeah, on Twitter, um, I'm at Nemocentric, which again is a hard thing to spell, probably unwise. <laughs> Um, but if you start, if you Google Thomas Moynihan, uh, I think the Twitter comes up somewhere on the first page. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes as well. Thank you. Um, and so the book is available. Um, if you go on, actually, the best place to look would be the MIT Press website. Then you have a list of all the places it's available. Um, it's available in in the UK. Waterstones and Foils are doing it. Um, I think that it was unavailable for a while, but it will be available again soon. Of course, Amazon. But yeah, the MIT Press website has a place where you can... Uh, 
find all the all the relevant places. Thomas Moynihan, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been yeah, it's been really fun. Fantastic to talk. That was Thomas Moynihan on the history of existential risk. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Tom. There you'll find links to all the books and papers Tom mentioned, along with a load more information. And if you're now curious to learn more about existential risk research, you might enjoy episode 16 with Simon Bitt. It's definitely another one of my favourites so far. As always, it would be great if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. There's a new star rating form at the top and bottom of each write-up. And you can send suggestions, questions, hate mail, and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you'd like to support the show more directly and help us to continue to pay for hosting, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.